0: This is maybe a very New York bias, but I still don't have my smell back from having COVID. And I honestly don't hate it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you go and like enter one of those like spicy food eating competitions and then like blow everybody out of the water because you couldn't even taste it?
0: Well, no, because I was in isolation. I mean, had I not been in isolation, (laughs) obviously the first thing I would have (laughs) done. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. According to a new poll out from the Wall Street Journal, Hispanic voters are now split evenly between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, just a year after 60% voted for Democratic House candidates. It's clear that Hispanic voters have been trending away from the Democratic Party, but there are some caveats in those numbers. So today we're gonna ask our favorite question, good use of polling or bad use of polling, We're also going to take a look at what makes high inflation so politically potent. Last Friday, the Consumer Price Index showed prices rising by 6.8% since last year, the fastest rise in nearly 40 years. And we're also going to check in on the endorsements that former President Trump is making so far in the 2022 midterms. We've previously tracked endorsements from different wings of both parties to see who has the most sway. So is Trump's endorsement a golden ticket to winning a Republican primary, and what kinds of candidates is he getting behind? Here with me to discuss it all is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also here with us is Politics Editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. And Senior Elections Analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. How's everyone doing? It's uh, mid-December. We're heading into the holidays. We're all taking some time off, I think.
2: Yes. Closing in on the favorite time of year where, we're, you know, it seems like society collectively agrees they're going to take a bit longer to answer emails, et cetera.
0: Blast. I love that. I should also mention, actually, that reminds me, we are going to be only recording one podcast per week through the end of the year. So we'll have... One podcast out this week, next week, and the week after that. And then in the new year, we'll be back to two podcasts a week. So we're part of the movement to collectively take longer to answer emails and slow roll the podcast. But let's dive into our favorite question. Last week, the Wall Street Journal published the results of its recent polling, looking at various questions, including approval of the president and voting intention in 2022. One of their headlines based on that polling was, quote, Hispanic voters now evenly split between parties, Wall Street Journal poll finds. They go on to detail in the article, quote, one year after giving Democratic House candidates more than 60% of their vote, according to polls at the time, the journal's survey found that Hispanic voters are evenly split in their choice for Congress, asked which party they would back if the election were today, 37% of Hispanic voters said they would support the Republican congressional candidate, and 37% said they would favor the Democrat, with 22% undecided. This article got plenty of attention, especially coming off of an election cycle in which Republicans made meaningful gains with Hispanic voters, But there are also some questions about what this data means. So for one, that's a pretty big number of undecideds. And additionally, this was not a poll specifically surveying Hispanic voters. As the article notes, the survey included 1,500 registered voters, including 165 Hispanic voters. The margin of error for the Hispanic sample was plus or minus 6.7 percentage points. Okay, so based on all of that information and those caveats and any other thoughts you might have about this poll... Is that Wall Street Journal write-up, that headline, a good use of polling? Nathaniel, kick us off.
1: This is a bad use of polling. Sorry, Ooh. Wall Street Journal. All right. Yeah. I should say that you know the Wall Street Journal is embarking upon a new and exciting polling uh, partnership, which we're all for, good for them. But uh, the specific article, I don't think it was very responsible of them to write up one specific crosstab from this poll. As you mentioned, Galen, the sample size of 165 Hispanic voters was very small. Um, If we got a regular poll that had 165 respondents, we would be very skeptical of it. The margin of error is much increased in that event, as you also mentioned, Galen. In addition, with Hispanic voters in particular, they are notoriously difficult to poll for reasons ranging from language barriers to increased mobility and things like that. And so to have a quote-unquote normal poll where you're just looking at a subset of Latinos that didn't even try to kind of oversample them or something like that and to extrapolate based on that, I think is pretty suspect when you do have a lot of firms, I'm thinking of places like Latino Decisions or Equis Research that specifically specialize in polling Latino Americans. And uh, given the the complexities of this group, we really ought to be looking at a more careful, bigger poll or even better you know an aggregate of many different polls of hispanic voters does everyone
0: agree
2: i would say bad ish and the reason why i say ish on that Introducing maybe a little bit of a middle ground here is, as Nathaniel was saying, like the Wall Street Journal, they've dramatically shaken up their polls, right? They used to partner with NBC News, did that for like 30 years. Now they're using campaign pollsters, the lead pollster for Trump's campaign in 2016 and 2020, and then the lead pollster for Biden's. And the idea here is larger sample sizes, which is also something that CNN said that they were taking on this year. So that seems to kind of be a trend. We talked about that previously on the podcast and thought that was good. But as Nathaniel was saying, The biggest problem here is that they didn't oversample for Hispanic voters, but then kind of want to take this one poll and make this claim for Hispanic voters writ large. You know, when we did our survey with Ipsos back in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election, looking at non-voters, we did 8,000 people and we specifically oversampled four voters who have a profile of not voting regularly. The downside is like, that's expensive to do. So I kind of understand why the Wall Street Journal can't do that all the time. Why I say bad-ish is because earlier this year in October, Jeffrey Skelly did a piece kind of looking into why Biden's approval rating was down. And he found polls since early this year had shown a downward slope with independents and also with Hispanic voters. So that's to say, like, I think the Wall Street Journal's findings kind of fit in with what we have seen from other polls on Hispanic voters, but it's a small crosstab and it's not the deep authoritative dive that the headline promises here. And I think that's what the issue is.
0: All right, Nate, are you going to be the ultimate contrarian and disagree?
3: I'm not contrarian at all. I have, I have common sense. And the common sense <laughs> David, is right, that this ahead. is a big problem for Democrats and you guys are kind of missing the forest for the trees. There is lots and lots and lots of evidence from polling as well as from maybe more importantly voting that the Hispanic vote has shifted away from Democrats in some parts of the Hispanic community more than others. And sure, like, you know, most polling related headlines, the poll should probably take into account the broader context of other research on this topic and not made a highlight out of 180 person, whatever it was, crosstab. But this is a big problem for Democrats. It was a big problem for them in 2020. It's a big problem going forward.
0: Well, Nate, I do want to talk about the broader question about trends among Hispanic voters. But is this specific instance of this use of polling, which we usually get, you know, pretty wonky and specific here. And then we can talk about the broader trends.
3: Is this a good use of pull? It's fine, yeah. Oh, okay. It is. I'm working on a book now, right? Mm -hmm. You'll find certain anecdotes in the book that you give a lot of weight to because they're meant to represent some broader topic. And if you're like an honest author, then the anecdote is indicative of like a broader theme and not some outlier. I don't have any problem with writing something up if it's not an outlier and you're using it as an excuse to like talk about things that are true, more or less. I Mm -hmm. mean, the whole point of like, you know, I said before, if you take into context kind of other research, well, some of that context might be the fact that you do decide to write this finding up, whereas if you had found, for example, I don't know, a poll showing black voters split 50-50, that would be some enormous outlier and that would be irresponsible, right? But here you are kind of taking a finding that is reasonably in line with other research, and I don't really think there's any problem with highlighting that.
2: One thing I struggled with, Nate, is A, I wish they had kind of pointed to other polls. Like when we did that piece in October, we looked at like 50 plus polls, right, to kind of show this trend. And the thing I struggled with is where they landed with this sample is it really didn't tell you anything unique about Hispanic voters. And what I mean by that is Hispanic voters just mirrored the overall voter pool. Like Americans are not happy with Biden. So I wasn't sure then in looking at it, like how much of that was uniquely telling me about Hispanic voters in this one survey. I agree with you that there is a broader trend. It's problematic for Democrats. I don't mean to downplay that. I just thought that this individual poll didn't tell me that much.
3: I agree, but look, as 538, we like it when other people do polls. It's good that the Wall Street Journal now, I guess, will be doing its own polling from NBC. That's more polls in the universe, right? And if the price that you have to pay for that is sometimes they like toot their own horn a little bit and pretend that they're polling is providing news value above and beyond the aggregation of all polling, then I'm willing to pay that price and humor them a little bit if, again, what they're writing about is something which is true over a larger set of data as well.
0: There's two votes for bad use of polling, one vote for good use of polling. So I guess we'll say, meh. But this does get at a more important question here, ultimately, which is, is this accurate? Does this poll align with what we've seen when we aggregate polls of Hispanic voters, that? there's now a basically 50-50 split, or is this somewhat of an outlier in that yes, Hispanic voters have shifted towards Republicans, but not quite this much?
2: It's definitely in line with what we have seen in other polls. Hispanic voters have showed among black voters, white voters, like the biggest decrease in support for Biden. The one thing I wanna caveat here though, is that Latino voters have always kind of been swing voters. And granted, if you look to exit polls from the 1990s, they have overwhelmingly voted Democratic, but a significant percentage has always voted Republican. It was one in five in 2016 when Trump was running per exit polls. In 2018, one in four. And some pollsters find different percentages for that. Now, when you look at 2020, it was roughly two in five. That is a significant increase, particularly from 2018. But I think we lose sight of that in 2004, Bush won like 40% of the Hispanic vote. So it's like, How much of this was a reversion to the mean under President Trump, who had significantly lost Hispanic vote in 16, Hispanic voters moving back towards Republicans now? There's always been a contingency that does. I mean, I think Nate's right that this seems to point towards a pattern that is not good for Democrats, particularly where a lot of polls are now for Hispanic support. It is lower than Biden would want. But I also wonder how much of it is unique to Hispanic voters and not just reflecting the overall state of the economy. Economy and general dissatisfaction with Biden. His overall approval is not good.
1: Yeah, I don't know, Galen. I certainly don't dispute the overall picture that Nate was driving at that Hispanics are becoming more of a swing group and Democrats can't take them for granted anymore if they ever could. But I would point out that, so I haven't looked at polls, the like kind of the Hispanic crosstab of generic ballot polls, which is what the survey is doing. The piece that we published in October was about Biden's approval rating, and that's definitely going down. I will also point out that the number of undecideds was just really, really high here. And I I don't have any trouble believing that 37% of Latinos are Democrats and 37% of Latinos are Republicans. The question is, what are those 22% in the middle? And you know who are they going to go for? And like, just in general, polls that show a high number of undecideds like this and a level of base support for each party aren't that useful because those undecideds can break whichever way that they are going to break. And there's just a wide range of final margins there.
3: Nate, what do you think? It's true that Democrats have a lot of problems right now, and they're not limited to Hispanics. So there's also other signs of trouble, for example, with Asian American voters. There's some degree of Erosion, perhaps, and to a lesser extent, even among black voters, too. So, I mean, again, this is not the emerging Democratic majority that the party would have hoped for. And part of it is that when Biden's approval rating is in the tank overall, you're going to have lots of different types of problems crop up. But, I mean, Democrats have to do some serious reflection here. There are lots of concerns about how well-respected is democracy right now. But at the current moment, Democrats don't necessarily have a majority coalition anymore. And some of that will rebound when the party does. But this is kind of a three or four alarm fire, I think, for Democrats.
0: So it seems like there's something of a question here amongst you all that is unanswered, which is, is this some kind of normal course of politics in that a party does better and it wins office, and then it does worse, and the other party gains seats or wins, wins the White House or whatever? Or is this something unique and uniquely bad for Democrats? Can we try to answer that? What do you all think?
2: I think the biggest point in favor for it being uniquely bad for Democrats is the divide we saw in education, even among Hispanic voters. So we've known education polarization has been a big thing with white voters, and it's been a big thing for a while now. And this was from Pew's validated survey, so looking at the election results from 2020 in June. And they found that Biden did much better among Hispanic voters with a college degree than Trump did. Trump did quite well with Hispanic voters without a college degree. He won them 41% to 30%. And so I wanna see another election where you know, this continues out, but one hypothesis we've had along the lines of, you know America's divided, whether it's rural or urban, America's divided on education. How much does that apply to Hispanic voters? This was a quote from a piece you had us read in preparation For the pod today, Galen, from Roy Texaria, a political scientist who actually is a little left-leaning, but he was saying that the reality of the Hispanic population is that they are broadly speaking, overwhelmingly working class, economically progressive, but a socially moderate constituency. And so, you know, if that bears out to be true, could pose real problems for Democrats that we're already seeing kind of manifest in the polls already.
0: Yeah, and I'll just say, adding to that, that When you look at the breakdown of the percentage of Americans overall who have a college degree, it's only 37 percent of Americans. So that's potentially some tricky math for Democrats. And on top of that, Hispanics are now the largest minority group in the country at about 19 percent still growing significantly, and Asian Americans are the fastest growing minority group in the country, about 5 to 7% of the country, and Black Americans, about 12% of the country. And so when you look at, you know, you mentioned the kind of emerging Democratic majority, if the growth areas in terms of non-white voters are Hispanic and Asian in large part, and those two groups seem to be shifting away from the Democratic Party, that shakes up a lot of assumptions about what the future American electorate might look like or how it might behave. I'm curious, are you all seeing a picture that's challenging your assumptions about American national politics?
1: I mean, I think that the emerging democratic majority thesis was always bogus. You know, I think we and others have covered that ground for a long time. I think as the country gets more diverse, there are reasons to think that the political balance will continue to try to be around 50-50. And so Republicans would try to appeal to groups like Latinos and Asians as they did in 2020. In addition, there's a lot of talk about how the country you know, is going to become majority minority by 2040 or whatever the projection is. But a lot of that kind of ignores the fact that these identities are fluid. And when Amelia Thompson DeVoe and I wrote about Latino voters before the 2020 election, a big part of it was that there are these conservative Latino voters who, who have Hispanic heritage, but they are kind of increasingly assimilating into white America and intermarrying with whites and losing a lot of their Hispanic heritage and traditions and stuff like that. And like some of them have, have stopped identifying as Hispanic. And so like it just goes to show that like just because people with Hispanic heritage or, you know, Asian heritage or or black heritage or non-white heritage are, you know, a certain number of the population doesn't necessarily mean that they will continue to behave that way or the way that that group is understood or behaves today.
3: Yeah. I mean, we have a story up this morning about the different racial groups that the census has historically used. And just as an empirical fact, it has been fluid how we've thought about race in the U.S. and how we think about ethnicity, where Hispanic is actually not considered a race by the Census Bureau per se. It's an ethnicity that you can also belong to be white and Hispanic or black and Hispanic or more and more Hispanics identify as neither white or black. But still, there are lots of people who, I guess, officially would consider themselves Hispanic or be considered by others to be Hispanic who think of themselves more as white people or as black people or whatever else, right? And so partly it speaks to, I think, how fragile the maybe kind of modern democratic notion of how we categorize different racial groups is. And that is kind of like a construct that may not match how people feel on the ground.
2: Right. There's always seemed to have been like this baked in assumption that more diversity is a win for Democrats. And I think what we are seeing challenged here is that's not necessarily true. There tends to be a tendency to want to lump all people of color in one umbrella because it's a national political stage. But, you know, one thing we have seen following the protests last summer for racial justice is Hispanic voters, more so than Black voters, support the police. And there are issues and fault lines, I think, that are present there that are challenging for Democrats, at least on a national level, to kind of build a coalition that speaks to all elements of its base, right? Hispanic voters also tend to be very patriotic, which is something that has broadly speaking been in decline among Democratic voters.
3: You asked a moment ago whether it's surprising, and in some sense it isn't because if you have voting that's more polarized along educational lines, then Hispanic Americans have fewer people with college degrees than among white alone Americans. So if you have more educational polarization, that becomes the dominant theme. And you are going to see erosion and Democratic performance among people who are working class of all races, potentially. That's kind of what we're seeing.
0: All right. Well, of course, this is a trend that we're going to continue tracking, and we'll have more conversations about this, and, and we will watch for more data as it comes out to see how well it matches this Wall Street Journal poll finding. Let's move on and take a look at the endorsements that former President Trump has made so far in the 2022 midterms. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout. 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen one of the ways that we've tried to understand the power centers in both parties is by tracking how different leaders and organizations endorse in congressional primaries. Since 2018, we've been tracking how Trump has endorsed in Republican primaries, and we are continuing to do that for this upcoming election. How much sway the former president has and how he uses it will be an important part of charting the future of the Republican Party. So Nathaniel, you have... Taken on this responsibility in large part in terms of tracking Trump's endorsements. And your top line takeaway so far, you recently published an article about this, was that Trump's endorsements are earlier, bolder, and more dangerous than when he was president. So unpack that for me. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So I also want to give credit to our intern Mackenzie Wilkes, who helped collect the data and write the article. But obviously, it's too early to say whether Trump's endorsement still has the power that it did you know, when he was president, because we just haven't had those 2022 primaries happen yet. And so we don't know his success rate yet. But we do know the denominator and like who he is endorsing. And those have had these three significant differences from 2018 and 2020 cycles when he was president. So first, as you mentioned, Galen, he's endorsing earlier than ever. So Mackenzie and I found 46 Republican candidates who Trump has endorsed for either Senate, House, or governor so far. And if you go back to the 2020 election cycle at this point, so December 2019, he had endorsed only 15 such candidates. So he's really ramped up the pace of his endorsements. And then another thing that we noticed is that they are kind of riskier or bolder. So in 2020, 22% of his total endorsements in Republican primaries were in contested races and they didn't involve incumbents. So like basically the vast majority of Trump's endorsements in 2020 were these gimmies of, you know, he was endorsing an incumbent who faced either no opposition or extremely um, kind of token opposition. This year, however, 46% of his endorsements are these non-incumbent contested races, which means that about half the time he's actually kind of jumping into a race where there is contested considerable doubt about the ultimate outcome. And this is notable because a lot of the reason that he's had such a high success rate in his past primary endorsements is because he's endorsed these total shoe-in candidates. And this year he is doing that about half the time, but the other half of the time he is actually putting his record on the line. So don't be surprised to see a dip in his win rate this year. In addition, it goes to show that he is really trying to use his influence to steer the direction of the party and to change who the types of Republicans who are elected to a greater extent than he did when he was president. And kind of related to this, the third change that we noticed, and this is the more dangerous part of the headline, is that he's endorsing candidates for some more niche offices. So specifically Secretary of State, which of course in most states is the office that controls elections. And so Trump has already endorsed three Republican candidates for Secretary of State, all of whom are believers in the big lie or the idea that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. And so obviously I think given his frankly, outright statements to this effect. He has opposed people like Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who refused to overturn the election results. And now he's endorsed a Georgia congressman who's primarying Raffensperger. And I think the part to fill in there is that there is a danger that these candidates who, presumably if they win, would do so in large part because they're beholden to Trump's endorsement, would then be a lot more willing to take steps that would subvert A free and fair election in 2024 for example and you kind of also see that with some of the anti-incumbent endorsements he's making in like senate and house races and stuff like that and so he's endorsing against a lot of the people who voted to impeach him for example people who didn't vote to overturn the election in congress so brian kemp another example of the georgia governor who certified biden's narrow win in georgia trump has endorsed his primary opponent so it seems clear that trump is targeting these people who aren't going along with basically the plan of Trump won the election regardless of the facts on the ground. And and we should disregard the results in order to bring about that outcome.
0: So two questions here. First of all, how unique is it for a former president to be endorsing candidates in the manner that Trump is?
1: Yeah, so we haven't done a comprehensive look at past presidents, but just in general his endorsement patterns have been very unusual for any president, even during the time he was president. It's unusual for, you know, the president because they have they're the leader of their party, right? They have such outsourced power. I think in the past it's been seen as kind of unseemly for them to weigh in on their own priorities primaries. And Trump did that while he was president without hesitation. One thing that I did look up in preparation for the podcast is that a former President Obama in the 2018 midterm elections, he didn't issue any endorsements until the general election phase of the campaign. And in that case, it was really to draw, I think, donors' eyes towards certain candidates. and
2: Because it was like a big blanket number, right? Yeah.
1: And like a lot of like state legislators and stuff like that. But like Barack Obama wasn't getting involved in 2017 in contested Democratic primaries about the direction the party was going to take. So at least not actively, you know, I guess you could make the case that he was working behind the scenes for, for certain wings of the party. But yeah, it is certainly unusual, as with many things about Donald Trump.
0: And so I think the literature overall is pretty mixed about whether endorsements actually matter writ large and when they might actually matter. But Sarah and Nate, I'm curious: Is there any reason to believe that Trump's endorsements do have a unique weight? That the way that he is weighing into his party's intra-party fighting will sway the direction of the party?
3: I mean, this seems like a pretty easy call, right? The GOP for how many years now? Um, <laughs> for you know, five and a half years has been unable to unwilling. <laughs> To distance itself from Trump, whether it's tactical or because they're afraid of reprisals if he comes after them or they're true believers. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of he's the leader of the Republican Party still.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is the vengeance primary, right? Like yeah. Trump is going in, taking out his enemies. I do think though, it is kind of an open question of how much Republican voters care and buy this, you know, particularly interested in Georgia. There's kind of this baked-in assumption that okay. Kemp didn't do his bidding, now he's back to Purdue, like it's all over. Is it? I mean, one reason why Yunkin did so well in Virginia is because Trump didn't step in. And I, you know, I don't know to what extent Georgia will follow the pattern of Virginia, but I do think we are seeing someone who, as Nita said, as Nathaniela said, has remained influential in the party. I do not mean to discount that. But he's also testing the bounds of his influence in the sense that. There's some random quality to the types of endorsements he's made. Some candidates, it's like, oh, that makes sense. Others, pure vengeance picks, where he's going against people who voted against him with impeachment, or maybe, you know, as Nathaniel was outlining with the Secretary of State candidates, haven't said, hey, I'd overturn the election. And that is really dangerous. And I don't mean to undermine that. But I also don't know to what extent we will look back at the end of the primary season and say, wow. This was somebody who still had his pulse on where the GOP is.
3: Yeah, that's fair. I think it's an open proposition with how voters view this. And there probably is a sizable minority of GP voters who want to move past Trump. But if you kind of get back to the whole like party decides theory kind of thing, that elite influence matters, then he is the elite that other Republican elites follow.
1: I will be a little wonky here, though. I think that is an important intermediary step, right? I think that a big part of why Trump's endorsements have been so successful in the past, in addition to the fact that he endorses a bunch of candidates who are already shoe ins is the fact that other Republican elites will line up. Behind him, So Trump endorses somebody and then everybody gets on board. Other senators and and governors will endorse that person, too. And and other potentially strong Republican candidates will drop out because they don't want to piss Trump off um, and stuff like that. And that is a question of, is that going to happen again this year? And so like with somebody like Herschel Walker, who is Trump's pick for Senate in Georgia, he endorsed him. And that does seem to be working. And Mitch McConnell didn't seem very excited about Herschel Walker. He's a first time candidate. He's got some baggage, some scandals. But eventually, Mitch McConnell got on board with him. But there are other races where that might not be the case. We saw in a special election earlier this year where Trump endorsed a candidate, but other Republican elites were like, you know, that's nice. That person's very nice, and I respect Trump's choice. However, I'm going with this other person who's also very well qualified. And that resulted in one of Trump's endorses losing an election earlier this year in Texas' 6th District. And so I think that that will be important. I do think that probably with him no longer being president— the, you will see some Republican elites more willing to not necessarily like be anti-Trump, but just to go a different way from Trump and continue to support candidates who are running against his picks. And as a result, you might see voters be like, OK, well, then maybe there are two good Republican choices in this election. Trump's pick and, you know, my senator's pick and, you know, and then I get they go for the senator's pick or something.
0: Nathaniel, you said that it was skewed, but I'm just curious. Do you have the numbers offhand of what Trump's basically win rate is for past endorsements?
1: Yeah, it's extremely high. So in 2020, it was 98% for all endorsements. And then in this narrower category of contested non incumbent races, it was 96%. Basically, you know, the claims that he has said that like anyone I endorse wins is almost always true.
0: I guess we'll put that to the test this year.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think too... The number of endorsements he's made to actively unseat members from his own party. I'm particularly interested to see how those play out. I think Georgia, again, is a really interesting example in the sense that you do have to win a majority of the vote in the primary in order to advance. And that might not happen. There could very easily be a runoff in Georgia. But I'm curious in states like that, where Trump is putting his thumb on the scale here to say, hey, this candidate hasn't done my bidding. How do voters respond to that?
1: Yeah, that's a great point, and that's a perfect example of like elites aren't going to go line up behind Trump in this case, right? You know, when he's literally endorsing against an incumbent, the incumbents tend to look after their own. And, you know, in the fact, the party committees, the NRCC and the NRSC are designed to help reelect incumbents. And so that, I think, is going to be the biggest test for these Trump endorsements. And, and this is also new, by the way. He's endorsed against 10 incumbents so far this year. And in total, while he was president, he endorsed wow. against two incumbents.
2: See, the vengeance primary. I think that should be a headline.
1: Totally. <laughs>
0: So, I think that we in the national media see these primaries as a kind of pro Trump, anti Trump conflict playing out in the Georgia governor's race, for example, in the Georgia Secretary of State race, of course, the congressional race in Wyoming, Liz Cheney's race. It's easy to paint that picture in broad strokes, but for Republican primary voters, are they seeing this as a referendum on Trump? Is it that? clear cut for the people who are going to actually be deciding these conflicts.
2: That's really hard to answer, Galen. I mean, I think it's like we're all trying to approximate how much influence does Trump still have? What does Trumpism look like without Trump? So these endorsements, I think, are a really helpful proxy for understanding, OK, like how far to the right is a candidate? What are they willing to backpedal on with the 2020 election result? How far are they willing to push Trump's agenda? And it does matter to what extent those candidates win. But I think what's challenging is Liz Cheney in Wyoming really could be in trouble. Her own party without Trump like ousted her out of leadership within Congress. And so I don't mean to downplay some of the significant anti-democratic trends we've seen there, but the extent to which primary voters are kind of grappling with this. And that's why I keep going back to Georgia, you know, like Kemp initially earlier in the year was kind of down in his approval rating, whether it was COVID and just like how he was handling, that's ticked back up. So how much are voters really still mad at him for what happened in Georgia and Trump winning and him not overturning the result? I don't know the answer there.
0: So as you've all mentioned here, we're looking at a situation where Trump's influence is going to be put to the test and the sway of these lies about the 2020 election are also going to be put to the test. Do we have any pieces of evidence at this point to suggest the argument going one way or the other for the Republican Party?
3: Again, I feel like a little bit of a... (laughs) broken record, but we have a track record of five or six years of Trump winning all these battles. You might think the one thing that would dispel GOP, the this that's Trump a little bit might be Virginia where Glenn Youngkin was able to kind of show an alternative to Trump that was quite successful, but I don't think that the GOP is necessarily being that smart or tactical about it anyway. And I think a lot of people are operating in fear of defying Trump and or they really believe what Trump has to say. So I don't see much changing, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think that the last five years have been littered with examples of people being like, this is the moment the Republican Party is going to break from Trump and it's never happened. And so I think that the smart rent money, as Nate says, remains on it remaining the party of Trump. But I do think there are reasons such as his riskier endorsements, the potential more willingness of other Republican elites to support different candidates, particularly incumbent ones, to think that his win rate won't be as high. So I guess my kind of boring answer is that it's going to be a mix. I don't know if Trump's win rate is going to be 30 percent or 80 percent, but I think we can be confident it's not going to be 98 percent again.
2: This was a story Nathaniel actually did earlier this year. It was looking at the Chow Congress or Republicans who had left under Trump. And what we were trying to answer there is in part that happened because Democrats had a really good year in 2018 and they lost elections. But it was also like this phenomenon of Trumpier, more Republicans in his mold winning office. But I think one thing Nathaniel had pointed out in that piece, and I think continues to kind of be true currently, is Yes, the overall Republican caucus, particularly in the House, got more conservative, but not overwhelmingly so. And I think there is still this debate that we're seeing play out in real time of what Trumpism looks like in a state like Virginia versus a state like Wyoming. And I think, right, like his win rate is not going to be 98 percent this time. I guess we can later see if I uh, overstepped here. But, you know, we are going to continue to see this remaking of what it means to be conservative and some more Trumpy candidates winning as a result.
0: All right. We shall see, as you said, Sarah. Up next, we're going to take a look at the political power of high inflation. And to do that, our colleague, Santul Nerker, is going to be joining. So I'm going to let you guys go. Thank you, Nate, Sarah, and Nathaniel.
2: Thanks, Galen. Thank you,
0: everybody. Thanks, Galen. All right. Let's talk about inflation. But first,
2: People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories. Follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
0: Last Friday, the Consumer Price Index showed prices rising 6.8% compared with a year ago. As I mentioned at the top, that is the fastest annual rise in prices in nearly 40 years. It's coming amidst a historically fast economic turnaround from the pandemic-related recession, a tight labor market, and historic levels of government stimulus. While wages for many low-income workers are rising faster than prices, for workers overall, growth in prices is outpacing growth in wages. We've talked to economists on this podcast about some of the potential causes for this period of high inflation and where things may go from here. The long and short of it is that there are numerous causes, the pandemic chief among them, and it's not clear how long it will last. But today we're gonna to ask a different question, which is what do we know about how inflation has historically shaped our politics? And here with me to answer that question is 538 editor Santul Nerker. Welcome to the podcast. Hey Galen, how are you doing? Doing well. So economists do all kinds of polling, just like we do, I guess for elections to see how consumers and businesses are experiencing the economy. So what do we know about how Americans are experiencing this economy? In general right now, Americans are not feeling all that great
4: about the economy. So the University of Michigan, which has tracked consumer sentiment going back decades now, found that Americans' feelings about the economy are as bad as they were during the recovery from the Great Recession about a decade ago. And for the entire pandemic, they're right now at a low point. So the economy has recovered over the last half year, as you mentioned, but American consumer sentiment has gotten worse. And that tracks in the polling too. So Gallup, which tracks Americans' confidence in the economy, found that Americans' net confidence in the economy sat at negative 29 underwater for the month of November. So way more Americans think the economy is doing worse and they're less confident about it now than Americans who think it's doing well. And when Americans were asked if the economy was getting better or worse, 70% of Americans think the economy is getting worse, while only 26% say it's getting better. And those numbers are way down from what it was in, say, June, when it looked like the coronavirus pandemic was about ending for a lot of people. And so what's strange about this is that, as you alluded to, unemployment has gone down, Americans have been spending a lot, and yet people are feeling worse and worse about the economy. So that's where inflation steps in, perhaps, as an explanation for some of this paradox.
0: Is it fair to chalk that all up to inflation? I mean, who knows? Maybe inflation really is that politically powerful and that emotionally powerful that this is all about inflation. Are there other reasons that people might be feeling pessimistic about the economy? Yeah, it's a good question. So, for example,
4: Americans definitely are feeling like, let's say, if you want to get, let's say, a used car, it takes a lot longer for that. Some things are in short supply. If you go to a restaurant, you might find that food is taking longer to be to be served to you and and things of that nature. But I do think that inflation potentially explains a lot of this sentiment because the economy really has gotten better on a number of other fronts. And Americans are spending a lot more. They're going back to work increasingly. But inflation does have this really strong emotional pull going back throughout history for Americans. So I think it is fair to say that the psychological effect of facing higher prices is causing Americans to assess the economy pretty poorly right now.
0: Let's talk about that history. So usually the mind goes to the 1970s when we think of periods of hyperinflation in the US. There have been other periods of significant inflation in the US as well. So looking back at history, what have the political consequences been? You know,
4: the 70s are like a great example of that, because since the 1970s and 80s, inflation has been fairly low. For example, at the start of the 1970s, Richard Nixon took measures to put a freeze on wages and prices because inflation was starting to get really bad, partly as a result of spending a lot during the late 1960s because of the Vietnam War and public debt had really increased. So there was one really strong political response to that. And as a result, the economy sort of did rebound in the near term. And Nixon's immediate political prospects improved, although, as we know, he resigned because of Watergate. And then you look back at towards the latter half of the 1970s, where inflation had been steadily ticking up over the latter half of the decade. But President Carter left 1978, the midterms, with both the House of Representatives and the Senate in Democratic control. But prices continued to increase over those last two years. And he saw himself get swept out of office, uh, losing in a landslide to Reagan. So that has definitely been one of the lasting political impacts of inflation. And most people today, if you ask them, will look to the 1970s as their North Star for understanding inflation.
0: But inflation is only one variable there. Like, can we try to strip out all the other things that were going on in politics and figure out how much of the public's backlash against an incumbent president is because of inflation? That's a great point.
4: And I don't want to oversell the impact of inflation on presidential approval. So the research is a little bit divided on this. But some research has found that, like let's say, a one-point increase in inflation leads to about a one-percentage-point decrease in an incumbent party's vote share. And other research has found that increasing inflation leads to lower presidential approval. But interestingly, lower inflation doesn't necessarily lead to higher presidential approval. So it does seem that the really high ends of inflation are something that people really react to very negatively, but it's not as if low price levels are something that people really welcome and notice.
0: So like basically people notice when it's bad, but they're not necessarily going to reward a party when it's just standard or average. Yeah, that's
4: what some of the research has found. So there's a 2002 paper that found that higher levels of inflation led to a lasting impact on presidential approval, but those lower levels of inflation had sort of a negligible impact on presidential approval.
0: So is that to say that, say, the direction of prices turns around in the coming year and we don't see this level of inflation near 7% in 2022? Does that mean that we can't necessarily expect that Biden's approval will increase? Yeah, I don't think we can expect that for a couple of reasons. One is
4: sort of the research I cited about how those low levels of inflation don't lead to higher presidential approval. But the other fact is like other things are going on in the economy. So, for example... If you look back to, let's say, the 1980s, the Reagan recession that happened as a result of really uh, hawkish inflationary measures taken by the Fed towards the end of the Carter administration, the start of the Reagan administration, led to a lot of suffering, and people were really upset about the recession. And at that point, people were not thinking about, oh, we're getting lower levels of inflation. They're thinking about unemployment's really high, the economy's doing poorly, things like that. And then if you look at around the Great Recession, that was also a period of a lot of deflation. And- President Bush's approval rating went down a lot. Obama's approval rating suffered because of the really poor economy. So it wasn't just that inflation was low. That wasn't how people were thinking about it. They were thinking that the economy is doing really poorly. I lost my job. And they, they look around them and they see other things that are bad. So inflation is certainly not the only thing that happens in the economy that people react really strongly to. But at this moment, it does appear that it is something that's
0: on the minds of a lot of American consumers. It sounds like the politics of inflation are pretty complicated. High inflation is going to provoke a backlash, but also policies from the Fed to increase interest rates that could potentially spark a recession is also going to lead to a backlash.
4: Yeah, and I think that it's important to note that whatever choice of inflation policy you take, um, in all levels of inflation, they end up producing winners and losers throughout the economy. And multiple economists I spoke to stress this point, which is that you can't choose low inflation and that not have political effects of its own. And there are also electoral effects of it as well. It just depends on what else happens during the economy. And there are also other events that happen outside the economy that also affect presidential approval. So it's important not to oversell the effect of inflation. But it is true that when presidents think about their economic agenda, inflation is one of those four-letter words that really like strikes a chord in terms of how they're
0: choosing their economic agenda. As we wrap up here, over the past decade or two, we've increasingly seen that views of the economy are linked to partisanship in large part, in addition to the actual reality on the ground. Now, it seems like the numbers are bad enough that for pessimism on the economy that people aren't just following their partisan impulses. But are we able to tease out the extent to which they are? So first of all, you're absolutely right that
4: as The increasing pessimism of late has come from both Democrats who view increasingly view the economy negatively and also Republicans who already view the economy negatively, but are doing so even more so now. But it absolutely is true that whether you're a Republican or Democrat is hugely important for how you view the economy based on whether a Democrat or president is in office. So, for example, research has found that inflation expectations in red states under Trump were much lower than in blue states under Trump. But if you go back to Obama, those inflation expectations were actually lower in blue states than in red states. And that change happened almost overnight. And research from Michael Tesla for 538 has also found that Republicans showed a lot more pessimism in the economy going back to May. But then if you take that back even further, like before Inauguration Day, uh, Republicans were actually fairly sanguine on the economy compared to Democrats. So that is a significant aspect of what's happening right now. But I do think it's important to note that as time has gone on over like the last six months, both Democrats and Republicans are feeling worse about the economy, even though there is that gap.
0: All right. Well, this is all really great information. I appreciate you breaking it down for us, Central. Thanks, Galen. Thanks a lot. We're going to leave it there for today. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we're only going to have one podcast per week through the end of the year. Then in January, we'll be back with two episodes per week. So that's it for today. And also for this week, my name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bittigary Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.